Welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Podcast. We're a real community of people who are passionate about pursuing God and growing in our relationship with Him. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit northridge.org.au. Well, hello, everyone. This is going to be a great evening. I just know because you guys are like already so vocal. This is fantastic. Um, if you're on the podcast and you're like, who is this bloke with the gravelly voice? It's still me. I've just been sick this week. And so I'm better now, but I still have the gravelly voice. So don't panic. I'm still me. What? A podcast intro. We've been wanting to re-record like the podcast intro for ages. And I always joke that I should wait till I'm sick so I have a really deep, like awesome voice. I'm not going to do this. No, no, but we've got to get like one of those mics where you're up really close and it sounds like you're on the radio. So we won't do it right now. It's all right. And I'd embarrass myself. <laughs> but, um, and we'll make Teddy sad. All right. Um, cool. I, I, I did come to also speak about the Bible, not just banter. So let's get into that. Um, as Jen said already, we are starting a new series Um, on Exodus, which is super fun. Now, if you weren't here last week, I want to really encourage you to listen to the podcast or to read the vision doc that we sent around in the email last week, which is also now on the website. The reason being that last week we talked about our vision and direction as a church uh, and as a community. And one of the things that we talked about is this um, sense that Jen and I have been getting for quite some time that as a community of people, we're entering into a new season. And the season is one of going deeper. We really believe that God is calling us into this time where he wants to grow us not just larger as a church, but actually take us deeper and show, what it mean, show, show us what it means to follow him with everything we've got. And God's been speaking to us really powerfully through this book of Exodus because um, when God called his people out of Egypt, that's basically what he was doing with them. He called them into this time in the desert where he gave them an identity, where he showed them what it meant um, to be his people. And we feel like that's what God is doing with us now. And so we are digging through the book of Exodus um, because we believe that God is calling us into this new series. Now, we are doing something absolutely unprecedented in the evening service. Normally when we have a series, it'll be three, four, maybe five weeks um, if we're kind of really going for it. So we are going to be digging into this book for the next 10 weeks as, as a people, which is going to be just absolutely amazing. And I cannot wait to see what God does um, as we dig deep into this series. Now, whenever you want to get deep into a book, one of the first things that you need to do, which is really important, is to ask yourself some really fundamental questions like, who wrote this book and why? Now, it's really important to say first up that what we're reading is a historical account. You know how sometimes when you you talk about the Bible, you talk about the different characters in the Bible? Sometimes that's appropriate. In this case, it's not because these aren't characters. These are actual people and these are the things that were happening to them. If you're interested in the historiography of, did I say that word right, Ando? Historiography of Exodus, encourage you to get into it. It's really interesting, but we don't have scope to go there now. So, sorry, mate. Uh, For the rest of us, (laughs) that's okay. Let's push on. Um, Who wrote 
the book of Exodus? Well, the traditional attribution is that it was Moses himself who's one of the central, not characters, central people in the book of Exodus. Now, it's probably fair to assume that Moses had a lot to do um, with the book. And in fact, uh, a lot of the second half of Exodus is just literally God dictating and asking Moses to write this stuff down. Um, But there's also references to things in there that happened after Moses' lifetime. So it's fair to, to assume that while Moses might have written a lot of it, he wasn't responsible for all of it. Again, if you're into studies of biblical authorship, really interesting read. We're not going to go there right now. The thing that I do really want to pay attention to here, though, that's really relevant for our purposes, um, is looking at the structure of the text. Because I think actually looking at the structure helps us to get a better sense of why the book of Exodus um, was put on paper or papyrus or scrolls or whatever it was. You see, the name Exodus, it refers to probably the most central and important event that happens in the book, which is um, the Israelites leaving Egypt and going, starting the journey towards the Promised Land. Now, obviously, that, that Exodus event is incredibly significant, but it's not the whole story. So the first 13 chapters are actually still in Egypt and setting up um, what the, the events that actually led to the Israelites being able to leave. Um, then it's actually only six chapters are spent, um, from 13 to 19, uh, are spent talking about the actual event and then leaving and some of that journey. And then the second half of the book is spent talking about the events that happened on Mount Sinai, which is when God gave the Israelites the law and really kind of defined them as a nation. And what this tells me about its purpose is that Exodus isn't just about the Exodus event. What this book is telling us is the story of the foundation of Israel as a nation. It's the story of how they went from being just a large group of people in a foreign land to being a nation who were God's people, who had an identity, who had a purpose, and who had a story. It's a really significant part of God's re-entry plan after the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And one of the things that absolutely blew my mind as I was reading through this book a few months ago for myself is that you, you, just, you run into the gospel on pretty much every single page. It's just absolutely amazing. And we're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit shortly. Um, but as we're doing this journey through the book of Exodus, I really want to encourage you to read it for yourself. Don't just believe what we tell you from the front. Get into this book. Read it in the message version or, or in the passion if that's helpful. Um, but follow along, get into the Word, um, and I just can't wait to see what God's going to do as, uh, as we go through this series. Now tonight we're starting at the beginning, because it's a very good place to start. We're going to start Exodus 1, uh, verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you pull it out, um, open it up, switch it on, um, however you like to read the Bible. And while you're doing that, uh, I just want to give you a really brief um, uh, background to, to where we're starting from. Um, the authors of Exodus sort of wrote it with the assumption that you would have um, read Genesis, and they feed into uh, each other really well. So uh, at the end of the book of Genesis, what we find is uh, that Israel, who is one of Abraham's sons, also named Jacob, takes his family of 70 people from where they were living to Egypt. Now why, being an Israelite, uh, why did they do that? They did that because um, several years earlier and through circumstances that I don't have time to explain, um, his son Joseph ended up in Egypt as a slave. 
But through God's anointing, through God's goodness, um, and through his ability to interpret dreams, Joseph goes from being a slave in Egypt to effectively being the prime minister and running the whole country on behalf of the Pharaoh with God's help. And they're incredibly prosperous. Uh, The nation of Egypt was incredibly prosperous during this time. And that's kind of where the book of Exodus picks up. So I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, um, but follow along in whichever translation you have there. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. I did practice that. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. So you with me? Good. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many uh, children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became an extremely powerful uh, nation and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, then they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Python and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, this is so good, the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in their demands. Now we're going to keep reading. We're going all the way through to 2.10 tonight, but I really briefly want to stop here to go on a little bit of like a planned tangent, because I could not preach on this passage without bringing this up. Um, I want to just really briefly contrast the Pharaoh that we've just read about with the Pharaoh that we read about at the end of Genesis in the Joseph story. You see, when Joseph rocks up on the scene in, in, as a slave in Egypt um, and has this kind of anointing and this gift, Pharaoh recognizes that anointing and that gift, and he decides that that is a blessing and sees it as an opportunity. Move forward a few generations, and then you've got the new Pharaoh who sees the blessing and the anointing on the Israelite people, and he perceives it not as a blessing, but as a threat. And you know, I believe that there is this bitter root that exists in our culture where we really, really struggle to celebrate the success of other people. And you know what? The fundamental difference between these two leaders of Egypt is that the first has the humility to know when he needs to ask for help and is rooted in that humility. Whereas Pharaoh number two is rooted in fear and sees the blessing of God on someone else as a threat. Who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Pharaoh number one or Pharaoh number two? I wonder if there's people in your school, in your workplace, um, here at church, 
uh, in your family, in other relationships. I wonder if there's people who you just, you see their success and you're just like, Ugh. God is calling us to be people who would celebrate the success of other people from a foundation in humility and not to try and control or, put, or bring them down from a place of fear. So who do you want to be like? Pharaoh number one or Pharaoh number two? And would we be a community of people that would be willing to celebrate each other's success? End rant. We're going to keep, keep going. So we're going to pick up from verse 15. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Zipporah and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him, and if it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we can't get there in time. It's brilliant. Brilliant. I love how they like pray into or kind of play into Pharaoh's fear of the Israelites. It's good, isn't it? Um, so God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now I want to stop here and I want to kind of point out two things. The first one is, I, I don't think we can move past this, uh, this passage without acknowledging the courage of those midwives. It's just awesome, isn't it? See, one of the things that we're going to realize the more and more that we go through the book of Exodus is that the kingdom of Egypt is somewhat of an analogy for the kingdom of darkness, and the Pharaoh is an analogy for the devil. And I love the way that in this situation, these two midwives are able to um, resist the temptation that's brought on, on them by the opposing kingdom to undermine God's plan. And I think we can all be inspired by the way that they choose to, even under oppression, they choose to follow and seek after God. Um, and to just see what happens as a result of that. It's so good. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is rather more depressing, and I think we actually need to stop and acknowledge the reality of the oppression that the Israelites are going through at this point in their history. You see, often it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to read through a historical account and just go, yeah, 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 like happened far away or happened a long time ago, must have been awful, but... And, and, just, and just kind of fail to engage with the gravity of the problem. You see, first of all, Egypt at this point, up, well, up until this point, Egypt has been a safe haven for the Hebrews. They were, they were refugees who came to Egypt um, because of the offer of safety and because it was a place where they could prosper as a people. Second, Pharaoh was literally aiming to control their population by murdering their children. When we go to Cambodia, one of the things that uh, is really, really important part of that experience is we, um, we take teams to the Genocide Museum, which is a school that was converted into a, a torture camp um, and has now been, since been made into a museum. 
um, and it records some of the stories of what happened during the genocide in Cambodia under um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And you can read as much as you like about the story of the Cambodian people, but it's not until you get there, you, you stand in, in, in that place where they were tortured, you look at their faces, that it just the heaviness of that whole situation hits you. And I want us to just get a little bit of a, a sense of the heaviness that must have been felt by the Israelite people at this point in their history, under all of this oppression. And I think it would be fair to ask, as we consider that heaviness, it would be fair to ask, where was God in this situation? How could he have let that happen to his own people? And I wonder if you've ever asked that question at a time in your life. Whether you've been going through something or someone you know has been going through something and you say, God, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? Now we're going to come back to that question. But first I want to keep reading and I want to show you where God was in that situation. So picking up uh, from Exodus 2 verse 1. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked, clever sister. Yes. Do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for, she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Now, if you're anything like me, You read this, and it just blows your mind. Like, do you realize what just happened? So, two Israelites, who are under all of this oppression, have a son, and legally, their obligation was to drown him in the Nile River. That was their obligation, according to the law of the time. Instead, they put him in the Nile River, but they put him there in a basket, floated him down the river, And he happened to be intercepted by the princess of Egypt, the daughter of Pharaoh. She goes on to adopt this child into the royal family and then gives him back to his family to raise. And then organize the government to subsidize the upbringing of Israel's future leader. Isn't that unbelievable? It's mind-blowing. It's just you couldn't make this stuff up. 
But the reason it's so mind-blowing and the reason that I don't think we expect this to happen is because God works a little bit differently to the way that we like to. You see, often when we're in a stressful or a, or situation or if we're struggling, um, if we're not doing super well, what we really want is for God to wave his hand and just fix everything. And I've got to admit, if I had God-like powers, that's probably how I would go about solving my problems and the world's problems. The problem is God is so much more creative than that. So much. See, what God does is he takes the broken pieces, he takes the mess, and he puts them back together to create something that's so much more profound. Do you realize that God has literally, in the story we've just read, God has taken the oppression that has been mandated by the king of the opposing kingdom. He takes that oppression, he takes that decree, and he uses that the opposing chin to raise up and empower the leader that will ultimately defeat the opposing kingdom. Isn't that incredible? And it's only when you start to realize how God works, how God works these creative miracles, that you begin to start to understand the word redemption. You know, so often when we think about redemption, we think about God just waving his hand or just overlooking all the problems and making them go away. But it's so much deeper and it's so much more profound than that, isn't it? You know, I think in our Western society where we love to just take a problem, throw it in the trash, and then go and buy a new one, it's really difficult for us to get this concept. So I want to illustrate it. Um, When Jenna and I are at home, if we're um, having dinner or we're cleaning up or we're in the kitchen, every now and then, not that often, but sometimes, a a plate or a bowl will somehow go from being in our hands to being smashed on the ground. It happens. It happens to all of us. And what we do in that situation, as any normal person would do, we, we, take, we take all the broken pieces, we sweep them up with our dustpan and brush, we chuck them in the trash, and then we sort of like um, vacuum up just to make sure there's no little bits and pieces that can get stuck in your feet. That's, that's how a normal person deals with a broken plate, right? There's a small group of people in Japan who do something quite differently, and this is, a, this is a, an ancient art, where if they have a piece of, of pottery and it breaks, they will sweep up all, they'll get out the dustpan and brush, sweep up all the pieces, but instead of chucking them out in the bin, they will melt some gold and they will put that piece of pottery back together with gold and it produces something that looks like this. You end up with a piece of art that is so much more valuable than it ever was before it was broken. And that's what redemption looks like. That's what happened when God redeems something. And so next time you're in a situation where you're asking the questions, where are you, God, and what are you doing? I don't want to invite you instead to ask the question, how is God turning this situation into a story of redemption? How is God turning this situation into a story of redemption? Now, it turns out that this redemption thing, this isn't the only time we find it in the Bible. In fact, it turns out it's somewhat of an MO for God. It's kind of how he rolls. 
But I want to tell you about one other situation that you might have encountered in the Scriptures where God operates this way. It's a story where God's people are oppressed by a kingdom that is contrary to his. A redeemer is born in humble circumstances and anointed by going into water and coming out again. Do you remember what Moses' name means? This redeemer takes this broken, oppressed group of people with him down into the depths, crushes the enemy, and emerges having established a new kingdom. Then God establishes his presence among his people, and he leads them faithfully towards the promised land, the destiny and the identity that he's called them into. Does that story sound familiar? You know, the thing that, the thing that blows my mind, the parallel between this passage and the story of Jesus that just absolutely gets me, is that in this passage, we've read about the way that God took, the, took Pharaoh's greatest weapon, his authority, and he turned that around to be the thing that ultimately freed his people and was the downfall of Pharaoh. God, God turned that greatest weapon against him. And when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, he takes on all of the brokenness, all of the hurt, all of the pain of humanity. He takes it all. And then he takes the, the, the kingdom of darkness, he takes its greatest weapon, death itself, and he points at all of that pain, all of that brokenness. And when Jesus submits to death on the cross, he takes the enemy's greatest weapon and he destroys the kingdom of darkness with it. And when he rises again from the grave, the only thing the enemy has left, which is death, he destroys that too. That is redemption. That is the God that we worship. That's the God that we celebrated tonight. That's the king that loves us and calls us home. What a God we have. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Lord, first of all, we just want to repent. Um, and we want to apologize for the times that we think that we know the solution. And for the times that, that we try and ask you to do things that are when you've got a much better plan. And so, Lord, we just, we just say sorry for underestimating you and overestimating ourselves. Lord, I want to thank you for the, the incredible, incredible gift um, that you've given us in Jesus. And Lord, this, this beautiful book that we get to dig into, this book, Exodus, Lord, we want to thank you so much that your gospel is all through it. And Lord, we're just so excited to keep digging in and learning more about you. Lord, right now, for anyone who, who can relate to that suffering, for anyone who is under oppression, for anyone who is in pain, for anyone who is struggling, Lord, we just speak your redemption into these situations right now, in Jesus' name.
Lord, we just ask that you would do a creative miracle in those situations right now. In Jesus' name. Lord, we call out new stories of redemption in our community and surrounds. Lord, we we just want to celebrate that you are a God who loves us so much and that you've had a plan for us since the beginning. So we just celebrate you right now, Lord. And Lord, I just want to ask that this truth, this redemption story would just um, be etched so deep on our hearts, Lord, that we would just wake up singing in the morning um, because we know your goodness. Mm. Amen.